It's 6.30 p.m., October 2nd, 2002. James Martin, a 55-year-old program analyst, has stopped at Shopper's Food Warehouse in Wheaton, Maryland. He's walking across the parking lot when suddenly a single bullet explodes through the air and ends his life. The following morning, four more people are shot dead across the D.C., Maryland area. That night, Pascal Charlotte, a 72-year-old retired carpenter, is hit while walking on Georgia Avenue. In every single case, the guns are fired from a distance and the killer completely vanishes afterwards. Nowhere to be found. As news of these mysterious shootings spread across the community, fear turns into panic. Shops close. Parents pick their kids up early from schools and the nation's media descends. And among the journalists, is a young reporter working for the New York Times, Jason Blair. Jason had recently been put on the national desk after being away from work for a while. What are we, like 10 months out of rehab at this point, something like that? He'd been battling some substance abuse problems and his ability to do the job was in doubt. But this story was a chance for him to win over his bosses and the pressure was on to deliver. And I go down, and it was stressful. Well, Peter, virtually every law enforcement agency in this area... See, you got to understand what it's like to be a reporter in these conditions. It's not easy. You're constantly on edge. You feel like something could happen in any moment. And I mean, this particular story is about people being killed at random without any warning. And Jason, he's right there in the thick of it. I will never forget this moment where I was standing out in the rain, wearing this yellow rain jacket that I had borrowed from a friend, just like spinning in circles out of my bloody mind. News channels had set up shop in DC and Maryland. They were broadcasting 24 seven. And Jason, he needed a story that could cut through the noise that would stand out in a saturated stream of constant information. And that's really the beginning of the true plagiarism and fabrication. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, plagiarism at the New York Times, how one man became an institution's nightmare. So... In addition to hosting this podcast, I'm also a correspondent for Vice News, where I travel the world telling people stories. Storytelling comes with a lot of responsibility. Responsibility to do the research and tell the real story. It's a lot of work. You got the cold calling, rejection, traveling. You think the story is one thing when you start, and after doing the work, you may find it's completely different and not as interesting as you thought it was. At this point, you got a decision to make. The right thing to do is to tell the new story as you found it or develop it further with this new information. You want your story to be engaging, but you can't give in to the temptation to bend the truth to make it so, even if there's the pressure of people depending on you. Today's episode really is about someone who gave in to that temptation, a journalist by the name of Jason Blair. In just four years, Jason went from summer intern to staff reporter at one of the world's leading news institutions, the New York Times. By his early 20s, 
he was regularly submitting articles that would make it to print, covering breaking news stories across the country. As a person of color, he was held as a beacon of diversity and was touted by executives as a prodigy of sorts. Until 2003, when the world discovered the truth about Jason and his reporting. And one of America's most trusted institutions had to look inwards and take stock. This is the story of what happens when a rising star goes supernova, maybe before they're ready, when a whole load of people ignore the warning signs, including the person themselves. Now, I'm going to level with you guys. The name of this show, mm, it doesn't exactly make it easy for us to speak to some of the subjects of our stories. We can see how a name like Cheat might be off-putting, but we like to think we present a pretty fair and nuanced picture of the story. We definitely aren't out to get anyone. And for this episode, we really felt like we couldn't deliver a proper version of events without hearing from the man himself. So after months of trying, we finally managed to get some time with Jason Blair to talk. Yeah, man. Well, first of all, thanks for taking the time. Um, of course. And uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, you've lived this story and probably had conversation like this until your face has turned blue. Purple. <laughs> Purple, yeah. I'm speaking to Jason over Zoom. My producer, Tom, is in London, and Jason is in his office in Virginia. Just to get an idea of who I am and where I'm coming from, uh, I have a background in in philosophy. You know, when I heard about your story, I was more intrigued with just the, the idea that nothing is really black and white. You know, a lot of what we as human beings exist in is in the gray, but when it comes to being accusatory and, and, and placing blame, we like to put people in categories even in a way that helps us deal with our own misgivings you know what i'm saying because it's easier i think to sort of cognitively feel that people who do bad things are an other because mm -hmm. then i'm not going to end up being someone who does something bad i think if you're old enough everyone has a story where they've done something that they wish they hadn't done the part that i think people have a hard time relating to is the public nature of it, but the way that I consider that, it was just a really big feedback session. I got the mm. world's best feedback session. <laughs> that was a pretty strong feedback session. I wanted to find out how Jason got into journalism in the first place. It's going to sound as corny as you could possibly imagine, but I got into journalism primarily because when I was in high school, I saw its power to sort of help people, to heal them, to give them the information that they needed to make informed decisions, to entertain them. It was one moment that stood out for Jason. I was particularly impacted by a time where we had a student named Winford Martin in our school. Um, he was killed. In January 1994, Winfred Martin III went missing and was eventually found dead in a field 10 miles northwest of Centerville, where Jason attended school. Jason was 17 at the time when a journalist showed up to get to the bottom of what happened. Seeing the healing effect on the people in our school just really captured me. The reporter made a big impression on Jason. Her article telling the facts of what happened cleared up any rumors that were circling around his school. He liked the fact that she made a difference. My name is David Folkenflick. It might sound a bit meta, but David is a journalist who covers the media business which includes reporting on other journalists. I'm the media correspondent for NPR News. He spent a lot of time looking into Jason's career, 
tracking it right back to the beginning, when Jason started at the University of Maryland's journalism school in 95. The University of Maryland is Maryland's premier public undergraduate university just outside Washington, and it runs a uh, pretty distinguished journalism school. David got to know Jason a little bit while reporting on him and spoke to many of the people who knew him in college. Jason was an appealing figure. He was uh, ingratiating and charming. Uh, He could be kind of funny, undersized a little bit, which was something noted by some of his colleagues. But his, his ambitions were outsized, and they were not hidden from view. His natural charisma did not go unnoticed. Not appealed to a lot of folks at the University of Maryland who like to see hustle, who want their students to prosper and thrive and be fulfilled, but also want them to demonstrate to others at the school or who might apply to the school that this is a place where people can really flourish and hit the national scene and make a difference. And in Jason, they had someone who they really felt would go places. This guy was flying. At Maryland, there's an independent student paper called the Diamondback. It was founded in 1910, and it's got this kind of hard-edged reputation. In 1996, Jason became their second African-American editor. But not everyone was happy about it. Jason saw at times resentments of him as somebody who wasn't in with a lot of the other people at the student paper. The dean of the school described Jason as an elbows-out competitor. That summer... Several high-profile papers all wanted him as an intern. He eventually chose the Boston Globe. He interned there in 96, then again the year after. In 1998, the New York Times, which is owned by the same parent company as the Globe, selected Jason for a hugely competitive fellowship. The year after, the Times offered him a second extended internship, which is pretty much a permanent position. And with that, he left Maryland. You know, these are often jobs given to people who then go on to maybe smaller newspapers, but having worked at a big newspaper, they can rise more quickly and have ties and can go back. That's not what happened with Jason. The New York Times at that time owned the Boston Globe, and they hired him. It's pretty unusual at the New York Times for an intern to be hired straight off the bat. My recollection is I don't think they realized that Jason hadn't graduated from the University of Maryland. Wait a minute. So this dude hadn't even graduated yet. This kid must have been something really special. I remember getting hired and in the old New York Times building up on the floor where the executive dining room was, there's this hallway. And along the hallway, they have a picture of every person that's won a Pulitzer for the Times. And it keeps on going on both sides of the hallway, keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going. So you know you're walking in the footsteps of giants at that point, right? I mean, you got to understand, This is the New York Times. Imagine being a kid from some small town in Virginia in your early 20s and you're stepping foot into this building with so much history, legacy, and over 130 Pulitzer Prizes to their name. I mean, you could practically smell the next award-winning piece of investigative journalism being cooked up. In that process, at any point did you suffer from imposter syndrome? I don't think so for my part. Like, uh, we like to joke that uh, self-esteem has never been one of my problems. I was also very cognizant of the fact that I have spent most of my journalism career ahead of my peers. And so it was the first time that I was behind all my peers running to catch up. 
despite the fact that I was confident, it was absolutely clear I'm behind these people. Even though, as Jason says, he doesn't struggle with confidence, people behave in different ways to cope with being placed in that kind of high-pressure environment, where you're one of only a handful of Black reporters. Some folks keep their heads down, get on with their work, and hope that they just become part of the furniture. Other people strive to get noticed, to make their mark. And some folks, they do whatever they can to survive. More on that after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Over the past 20 years or so, there's been a huge change in the way media works. I mean, think about how your own habits have changed during that time. As a society, we went from reading the paper on Sunday or watching the news at 6 p.m. to constantly scrolling through our phones, digesting information. Newspapers moving from a once-a-day news cycle to a 24-hour news cycle is an enormous strain. You don't know when to publish, how many times you need to publish. You're constantly, instead of trying to beat your competitors once a day, you're trying to beat them five, six, seven times a day. And that opens the door to all sorts of challenges and mistakes. You don't even know how to correct things anymore. Despite all of this, in January of 2001, Jason was promoted to the position of full-time reporter. That same year, the New York Times also appointed Howell Raines as executive editor. Raines himself was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and writer. He'd been at the Times for 23 years. If you say the Times culture is focused on accuracy first, he was way more focused on what he called flooding the zone. Flooding the zone? What the hell does that mean? where if there's a big story, you just shove troops out the door like it's, you know, people storming the beaches of Normandy. Reigns took over the New York Times six days before 9-11. Six days. This man had not been there for a week. And this was a period where the whole world was looking towards places like the New York Times for information, opinion, even guidance. In lots of ways, we trust our favorite news outlets to hold our hands through extreme moments of crisis, and this was definitely one of them. Reigns knew that. He knew the pressure was on to deliver. Reigns' embrace of a star system, I think, accentuated the inherent nature of the times, which is that you have so many people and so many talented people. They're often pitted against each other rather than encouraged to work collaboratively. All of that talent, all of those stars, pitted against each other? Sounds a bit toxic. I mean, who can you trust when you're constantly trying to outdo each other? I suppose it can produce results, but it also can blow up in your face. I mean, one person there was like, look, it's like a pit of snakes. I don't think that's fair to the experience of most people at the times. But I think there are moments it feels like that. If Reigns felt the responsibility of working at the times during that intense period of post 9-11, it's probably safe to say that every single intern, reporter, and editor felt it as well. 
there was intense pressure on their journalists to deliver, to be present journalistically all the time. The idea that you needed personal time off, the idea that you might be going through uh, almost like uh, military-like PTSD was not readily acknowledged. So Jason's here in this highly pressurized environment, but instead of taking some time off or asking for help, he starts finding ways to cut corners. Speaking of that pressurized environment, can you take us to the first time that you remember plagiarizing and fabricating? It was soon after September 11th. I went out to do your normal man on the street, couldn't find the quote that I was kind of looking for, got back to the office and pulled a quote from an Associated Press story, and I didn't attribute it to the Associated Press which just basically means give the Associated Press credit. And I didn't for some reason. I was filled with terror that night that they were going to catch it. Then that was going to be the end of everything. But they didn't catch it. None of his editors noticed the quote was from the Associated Press. They all thought Jason had sourced it himself. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, The Paper. So in this movie, Robert Duvall and Michael Keaton... Both play these two guys who manage this big national newspaper. They're workaholic types, married to the job. They're having this conversation at the bar. And Robert Duvall's character said to Keaton's character, hey, if a man came into your house with a gun, pointed at your wife's head and said, I'm going to shoot your wife if you don't quit working at the sun. Keaton's character says, of course he'd quit. He'd choose his wife over the paper any day. And Duvall's character points out that life's big choices never come in uh, one big event, like a man Mm. at the door with a gun. They always come in little, little moments. That night you stay extra in that case, the trip that you take away from your family. Jason says that's kind of like how he started on the wrong path. I mean, think about it. Most of the folks we consider to be cheats didn't come out of the womb that way. It can happen one bad decision at a time, sometimes without you even knowing it. It's not one big event like that. It's a ton of sliding door moments where I can choose to walk through the door or I can choose to not walk through the door, but it doesn't seem like a big deal to you in the moment when you make that first step. In some ways, you could also attribute this analogy to Jason's relationship with alcohol and drugs. Like a lot of people, He started experimenting back in college. People at the university used to joke that he knew the campus bartenders by name. This pattern of behavior grew into something more serious after 9-11. So when you talk about your your relationship with alcohol and drugs, did you often write under the influence? When you're doing enough drugs and alcohol, you're always under the influence. But... But not, you know, I wasn't one of those people who was convinced that my writing was somehow better under <laughs> the influence. It was pretty clear to me it was worse. Jason has spoken pretty candidly about his drug use during this time. He said that it caused him to be withdrawn, isolate himself from colleagues, spend days awake in his room, and then sleep for 18 hours. You know, he struggled with mental health issues. He struggled with depression. He has written and talked about having basically treated a lot of that through substance, not just use, but real significant abuse. This is David again. You know, Jason would have been well-served by walking away and gathering himself. 
he was also in a position where he was being presented with what seemed like the keys to the kingdom. We're putting you on this fast track to become a permanent reporter at the leading news organization in the country, if not the world. Very hard for somebody to step back and say, I can't process that. I can't do that. I am not capable of doing that. Seems to me like Jason was in a pretty difficult position. On one hand, he's landed a dream job at this prestigious institution where everyone wants him to succeed. But on the other hand, it's a hugely intense environment. He's battling mental difficulties and a bad relationship with alcohol and drugs that seriously affects his ability to do his work. Mistakes and inaccuracies in Jason's work were beginning to get noticed. In January of 2002, he was told by his editor, Jonathan Landman, that his correction rate was high, too high. It was at this point that Jason let the Times know about his substance abuse problems. They gave him two weeks off to get some help, but a few months later, his performance was slipping. Landman even sent a memo that read, we have to stop Jason from writing for the Times. The next day, Jason was reprimanded and took some more time off. When Jason finally returned to work, he managed to orchestrate a move to the sports desk. However, in October of 2002, a story started breaking that called him back to his old stomping ground, Maryland. Which brings us back to the start of this episode. And so I was basically put on the national desk to go down to cover the sniper shootings. The D.C. sniper shootings was a huge story. Over the course of three weeks, two men, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, terrorized D.C., killing 10 people and injuring three more. This was a flood the zone story. The shooting started yesterday at 5.20 p.m. Howell Raines increased the size of the team to eight reporters, including Jason. So here was Jason, desperately trying to get a grip on his mental health, looking to cover some more lighthearted stories on the sports desk. And now he's just been pulled into this crazy situation. I'm not making excuses for him, but I can definitely see how that would affect a person. By the time I was 27, I had seen well over 250, like I counted it at 270 dead bodies. I've seen dead bodies wow. in airplane crashes. I've seen friends on a train track and five of them got ran over, spread over hundreds of feet. I didn't really know anything about trauma. And I have to tell you, it took me 15 years to even consider that trauma played a role in it. I covered Minneapolis protests and Portland protests got shot at by federal troops and arrested. And and I was like, I don't know if this is what I signed up for, but it was, you know, I had to, no, I won't forget it. And I had, and I had to go get, you know, go talk to somebody about, about what I was experiencing. I think it's a testament for, to how far we've come along that you had people telling you to go talk to someone. So that's good. I get Jason's point here. I mean, back in 2002, the world hadn't really woken up to issues around mental health. You got to wonder why this kid, who has already had time off for personal problems, was sent into a place that would have tested the chops of any seasoned reporter. A world fraught with law enforcement agencies, a public scared as hell, and other news outlets all jostling for position. But Jason was desperate to make his mark. Six days after his arrival, he landed a front-page exclusive with intimate details about the arrest of John Muhammad, the main suspect. 
His article was based on the accounts of five unknown sources, and it implied that investigators had been forced by the United States attorney to end the interrogation of John just as he was about to confess. Except John Muhammad was not on the verge of fessing up as Jason had written. It just wasn't true. The United States attorney and a senior FBI official released statements strongly denying the details in the story. There were serious doubts about Jason's sources, but still he was allowed to continue working. And not only that, he was asked to lead the reporting on the prosecution of the D.C. sniper suspects. But it wasn't only Jason's sources that were in doubt. It was also his whereabouts. You see, when you're working for a place like The Times, to say that you're reporting on a story in Colorado, you need to actually go to Colorado. Jason wasn't really prepared to do that, but he had to make people think he was. The amount of work he devoted to fabricating interactions, to going through the computer internal database of photographs. Whoa, 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 whoa. See, this part I need you all to understand clearly. This dude, Jason, would take a sneak peek at photographs captured by people on the ground, and he'd note down anything about the place that stood out to him. The phone booth on the corner, that unusual storefront, the position of a park bench, Literally anything he can include in his article to make it seem believable and that he was there. I mean, you got to admit, that's pretty slick. To be able to stick in stories to make people think he actually went to West Virginia or that he was actually in Maryland at some place to get in an interview when he wasn't, when he was at his apartment in Brooklyn, probably took more effort than it would have taken him to go do the story. From the sniper story in October of 2002 to the spring of 2003, Jason submitted articles claiming to be from 20 cities across the country. On the 26th of April, 2003, Jason wrote a story that made it to the front page of the Times. It was about Edward Anguiano, the last known American soldier to be missing in action in Iraq. In the article, Jason claims to have interviewed Edward's mother. He also claims to have reported on the story from the family's home in Texas. Can you talk to us about the the relationship that you had with a fellow intern, I think that uh, covered a story in, in San Antonio. Oh yeah, Macarena. She was a yes. part of that group. Macarena Hernandez was one of Jason's fellow interns during his first summer stint at the New York Times. She was actually selected and she made the decision to not stay because I think she wanted to go to Texas. Macarena was now working at the San Antonio Express News. She was also reporting on the Anguiano story. She had interviewed the mother, and her story included details like Juanita Anguiano pointing to the pinstripe couches, the tennis bracelet still in its red velvet case, and the Martha Stewart patio furniture, all gifts from her firstborn and only son. Macarena was proud of the article. Eight days later, she picks up a copy of the New York Times and reads Jason's article on the story. She couldn't believe it. It read, Juanita Anguiano points proudly to the pinstripe couches, the tennis bracelet in the red case, and the Martha Stewart furniture on the patio. She knew straight away that he'd lifted sections from her article for his own. If you were under the mistaken impression that this was some grand plan to build a career, you would think you probably would not plagiarize for a front page story your former intern who's got 
half the newsroom on speed dial. Macarena told the Times what she suspected about Jason. I think I was mad at first that she made the call. But, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad she made the call and made the decision because God knows where it would have gone. I needed a way out of the situation. Mm. And I might have been mad, but she gave it to me, so. At no point, Jason, did you say to yourself, like, this woman has half the newsroom on speed dial, so there's probably a high likelihood that I'm going to get caught. I didn't even notice that she wrote the story. I I was that far out of it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't even know it was your former colleague that who wrote the story. That is correct. Now, to your point, was it self sabotage? Yeah, maybe it might have been self sabotage because it was more blatant toward the end. But yeah, I had no idea it was her until I got the phone call. And what was the fallout? Started with a phone call that said, "Where are you?" Three days after the Anguiano story, Jason was called into the Times to answer the accusations against him. And ultimately what happened was they brought me in and for a couple days asked me questions. I tried to deny them. You see, there's one thing that every reporter keeps sacred over anything. Something that they guard so close to their chest, it barely ever leaves their sight. It's a record of all their expenses. They asked me to produce receipts. Ah, shit. There's one problem with that. During that five-month period, Jason supposedly visited 20 cities. He did not submit a single receipt for a hotel room, car, or plane ticket. It was at that moment they knew he was lying. And then finally, and I had never really like consciously thought of this since uh, maybe high school or middle school. I was ready to like kill myself and I was with a friend and I just snapped out of it and I said, okay, this is officially not worth it. So I went in and resigned the next day. Instead of reacting in anger, as an organization, they basically dumped all my friends out of the newsroom to come find me and then recommended I get in touch with the counselor, the employee assistance counselor at the Times, even though I had resigned at this point who then said, you need to go see your treatment providers. Jason was eventually diagnosed as bipolar. So the Times actually helped Jason on the way out. But nobody really knew the depth of this story yet and what this meant for the people at the top of the organization. More on that after the break. On the 2nd of May, 2003, the Times published an article referencing the Edward Anguiano story, stating that Jason Blair had resigned. This set off a whole chain of events within the paper. They asked for this outside list of dignitaries in journalism to figure out what had gone wrong. This investigation went deep into Jason's reporting, his colleagues, and the culture at the Times. They left no stone unturned, identifying several moments where the situation with Jason could have gone differently. One of them was the University of Maryland's recommending Jason rather than saying, look, there are some maturity issues here and there's some things he has to work on, which I think would have been a relatively fair reflection of Jason Blair at that time, probably even by his own account right now. 
Although Jason was highly thought of by some people high up at the university, there were lots of people who didn't trust him. His colleagues, some of whom went on to be professional journalists, felt they saw a pattern of intellectual dishonesty when it came to his reporting. But what about the Boston Globe? Didn't the Times ask them what they thought of Jason before they hired him? They certainly didn't bother to pick up the phone and call the guy overseeing the internship program at the Boston Globe their sister paper. Not just a paper where you have colleagues that you respect and might just sort of say, let me do due diligence here. We're thinking of hiring him. But you actually own the paper. And they didn't bother to send an email or to call and say, what about this guy? Clearly, none of these red flags were enough for anyone to stop Jason from doing what he did. Jason's sins were significant and real and fundamental and disqualifying, journalistically. They didn't get us into war. They didn't send somebody to jail. But they do have serious repercussions in that they help to fray and unravel the trust that some Americans will have. They add to a narrative that we shape stories the way we want. We don't care about the people. We cover enough to tell the truth about our interactions with them or about what they have to say. Five weeks after the scandal with Jason, executive editor Howell Raines and his managing editor Gerald Boyd stepped down from their leadership roles at the Times. The paper published a long article citing all of the fabrications and inaccuracies in Jason's work over his five-year period at the company. They uncovered serious problems in over half of the 76 articles Jason wrote since the sniper story. Arthur Sulzberger, chairman of the New York Times Company and the paper's publisher, called it a huge black eye. When people hear your story, I think there's an inclination to sensationalize. Can you talk to me just briefly about how this is a story about mental health and depression as much as it is, or if not more than, about cheating? To some extent, my story is a very human story about pride. It's a story about mental health and paying attention to it. It's a story about being willing to accept that you have faults and that you need help. Like, if there's anything in my story where it could have been turned around or something different could have happened, it would have been a willingness to ask for help. And I think over time, you know, what I've realized is that people have gotten a lot fewer lessons about journalism from my story and many more lessons about how to take care of their mental health and how to address it quickly. So, if Jason had the choice, would he do it all again? Yeah, well, but it changed my life. So, mm. you know, I joke with people like, if I could like rewind the clock and erase it having happened, but I would have lost everything that's come out of it, all the growth, the current company that I have, the ability to help people, like what would I choose? I really think I would, I would, I would choose to go through it again. And it was horrible. It was wow. terrible. It was wow. ransom. But I've gotten that much good out of it. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. 
And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week, the Thanksgiving origin story. It serves as a way of perpetuating the American myth of freedom, the American myth of the founding fathers. There's the myth of peaceful coexistence between the Native Americans and pilgrims. I think it should be called National Day of Mourning because it is a day of mourning for all Native peoples across the country. Why the Thanksgiving myth is one of the biggest cheats on the U.S. calendar. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Tom Fuller. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Ennis Bowen. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>